welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, author, dreamweaver, visionary. In this very spooky episode, we are joined by two special ghosts, I mean guests, Ash and John of the Horror Vanguard, to talk about the art of creepypasta. This topic was suggested by one of our Patreon subscribers in the Discord. If you'd like to suggest an episode topic, sign up at patreon.com slash writegood and join the discussion. Let us start by defining our terms. For our spookiness-impaired listeners, what is creepypasta? So how can we define creepypasta? The term creepypasta, derived from copypasta, originally referred to little horror stories or vignettes that were copied and pasted anonymously around the internet, like copypasta memes such as the infamous Marine Todd or the you-have-to-have-a-very-high-IQ-to-understand-Rick-and-Morty meme. The term has expanded to include general spooky horror content on the internet, and some well-known creepypastas include Slenderman, who could forget Slenderman, The Rake, The SCP Project, Candle Cove, Ben Drowned, Ted the Caver, The Russian Sleep Experiment, Suicide Mouse. What are some other ones? There's a ton, but mm-hmm. what are your favorite ones? Oh, man. Um, I think my all-time favorite is all of the variations of Lost Silver, the the Pokemon uh, uh, like vaporwave cartridge creepypasta. Hmm. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, I think the one that I uh, came across first was the Russian sleep experiment. Right. Because uh, there's a very famous image that is associated with it. It's uh, you know ostensibly it's a photograph right. that's been that's been preserved. But it's in reality, I looked I looked it up and I think it's like somebody's art project that they've just like edit that somebody edited into it. So the Russian sleep experiment was was the was the first one I think that I stumbled across. On when I was much less online and much younger, <laughs> uh, so that that one I think probably has to be my favorite. Right, which one scared the shit out of you the most? <laughs> Ooh, um, I'm gonna go. I know, I know you already mentioned it, but Ted the Caver. I think yeah. like, like Ted the Caver yeah. was yep. like so creepy following that along and then like waiting and then when it ended and nothing happened like just constantly refreshing that blog like going back every couple of weeks and being like okay like what happened ted (laughs) i thought that that was always really good but um, a lot lot of the scps uh, are, are really 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 creepy oh yeah they're great and they're lots and lots of fun i think candle cove stuck in my head for a long time when i first came across that one uh because I I I had either seen or participated in conversations that were similar. The whole like, hey, do you remember that thing? Do you remember right. that weird thing that that we all grew up with? And then coming across this, and you go, oh wait, what what? If? You know, it's just the kind of that niggling little what if question. Yeah, taken to taken to its like logical end point. Right, and the fuzziness of childhood memories, and just remembering an era of entertainment in which things weren't universal you had these weird little local shows and you had the ability to sort of forget things and lose sight of things like Mm. back in the day there were so many rumors of lost episodes of a tv show or they showed this one episode one time and it freaked everybody out so they never showed it again Mm -hmm. because it was possible to just you know miss an episode of your favorite show and then never see it again if they decided not to rerun it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because there was no other way of accessing that media. So, right, you know, maybe maybe it never happened. Maybe you just 
Maybe you just imagine the whole thing. Right, right. And I mean, false memories are absolutely easy to, to get, especially with kids. But, but mm-hmm. um, studies have shown that it's really easy to implant false memories in a person's mind through hypnosis. You can even do it by accident. A lot of the uh, satanic panic came from incompetent psychotherapists just accidentally yeah. implanting memories of weird satanic ritual abuse in children's brains without even meaning to. Yeah, yeah. It's it's even it's even just a normal function of the human brain. Like every time you access a memory, your your brain has to to refresh it. And each time you refresh it, it's just like um it's a chunky analogy, but like it's like when you keep accessing files on your computer, by and mm-hmm. by like, you know, the hardware has to wear down a little bit every time you pull up a file and then like by and by those files will degrade from transferring or from like the the raw disk itself starting to distort. So like mm-hmm. our as we get older, our memories of our childhood become increasingly blurried, increasingly distorted, and increasingly less accurate. And I think like creepypasta really taps into that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, a lot of them do. So that is one common creepypasta theme or motif is this sort of idea of inaccurate memories or just false perceptions, misperceptions, how malleable the human mind and the human perception is. And there's a lot of sort of lost technology or lost media, haunted video game cartridges, forgotten TV shows on public access channels, Suicide Mouse was supposedly a lost animation. And the form of it, it, the format some of them take, like here's a selection of random message board posts or reposted Mm -hmm. content that you stumble upon, fits really well with this sort of old horror trope of old manuscripts discovered in a forgotten library or a spooky old super eight film or a rediscovered unmarked VHS tape that is haunted or a lost scroll. If you go back far enough, in other words, it's knowledge of mysterious origin that maybe you're really not supposed to have. Yeah. Like found footage, like maybe it was lost for a good reason. And Mm -hmm. by trying to dig it up, it's like, Oh, you shouldn't. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. This idea that like it's very old. It's very like in terms of in terms of like the 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 rules of the genre, as it were. Mm-hmm. This is maybe some of the oldest storytelling that you can do. This idea of there was a there was a there was a manuscript hidden in this old library that nobody has seen for 120 years, and then for yeah. some reason you're the one who finds it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even the first gothic stories yeah. back in the 1700s, I think like Castle of Otranto, yep. supposedly it was, this was a, based on a manuscript that was found in a castle that is 300 years old. And like all of them, so many of them take that format. And it's so interesting mm-hmm. to see it applied to a, the modern world of like, oh, here are screenshots from a, a message board mm-hmm. that hasn't updated since 2006. And it works so great because so much of the internet, uh, at least until recently, was these sort of blogs that haven't been updated in a bu- couple of years or sort of dead message boards or, or something like that. This something that uh, a, a form of conversation that used to be very lively and sort of petered out. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's like so, so many spaces on the internet have have become de facto ghost towns, and and in that yeah. in that absence and that degradation comes this kind of this kind of haunting, right? And I think that 
a, a lot of a lot of good creepypasta energy leans into that, right? Like I think Ted the Caver has aged so well because right. like I don't even know if the original Angel Fire site is, is still up. I mean, you could probably find it on like uh, like any of the, the you know, web archives. I think it is. I think but it is like, still up, actually. I mean, like I, oh, I, I, I see I see up. that most now in like Tumblr recreations where people just post screenshots from the original. And, like, I think that just makes it so much better that, like, you, you can't find the original anymore. You could just find these screenshots, and it makes you feel like you're missing so much more. It adds mm. this level of, like, like, I think we were talking about just a bit ago, you know, when you were a kid, and you, your friend would be like, hey, I was hanging out with my cousin, and he said he found a dead body in the woods. And, like, you know, yeah. he said it was, like, you know, maybe thirty minute a 30-minute hike from the old train station. And then you'd go and try and find it, and it's just like you're you're working off of broken information on this kind of haunting story, and everything is creepy, but it's all just just missing chunks of data. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I think this it taps into something really foundational about the internet, which is that you know it's sold as a kind of utopian idea. There's that kind of ghost story that like once it's on the internet, it's there forever, and it's like no, that isn't how the Not internet really. works. The internet is. Is a is a graveyard. It's full mm -hmm. of of ghosts. So even though we've been told it's this kind of permanent life altering technology, which it is, it is yeah. also this incredibly spectral place. Yeah. So it's it's a very old traditional way of storytelling, but it taps into something that is incredibly modern, which is this technological anxiety about permanence. Like right. the amount of stuff, the amount of stuff that just vanishes from the internet. I mean, if you're interested in, in copyright, if you're interested in academic research, you quickly realize like the internet is not only full of barricades and, and paywalls and access limiting uh, fronts, but it's also in many ways just emptying out of actual the actual stuff that you want. So that's why I think the, this kind of way of storytelling is so interesting. Right, right. And I always love to see how these sort of older types of stories, uh, like ghost stories or cosmic horror, how it tackles with the modern world. Mm. Because it's it's so many kind of horror writers or wannabe horror writers kind of get stuck in that old cliche of like gothic castle in the woods. And <laughs> I always love it seeing people taking that and turning it into something modern in a way that works. It's kind of hard to pull off, but, but when you can, well, why not put this ghost story in, in a crowded city? You know, why, why is it a haunted manuscript? Maybe it's a haunted videotape. And if you can pull yeah. it off, it's really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think like it's it's kind of like an interesting quirk of the history of Gothic literature, right? And that's so much of the horror literature that we have today is just just the direct descendant of the Gothic. And like when you right. go back to things like you know the, the Castle of Otranto or the Monk or stuff like that, like Horace Walpole wrote the Castle of Otranto um, not as a contemporary piece, you know, like mm -hmm. the as we were talking about a bit ago, like the introduction to that novel is like, hey guys, like I found these old freaky manuscripts, check this yeah. shit out, <laughs> and like, and then mm -hmm. um, the story starts from there, and then like I, I think as future as time is kind of pulling forward, we're we're, we're experiencing that, right? Like it's mm -hmm. it's hack to write about the haunted Gothic castle because that's what we were writing about three hundred years ago, like that was the spooky right. thing then, and then now it's like. 
we just rounded a technological corner. I, I, I grew up as kind of like that transitional uh, generation where when I was younger, we learned how to type on typewriters and we had, right. you know, you could go rent a VHS tape from a blockbuster. And then like as my teenagers right. progressed, we lost all of that in favor of like YouTube and computers and things like that. And now right. like, mm. you know, the, the new Gothic castle is the blockbuster in a way, right? Yeah. <laughs> The rotary phone or something like that. <laughs> My uncle's haunted rotary phone. Not clickbait. Yeah. And there is with it also this sense of time, like, oh shit, I'm getting older. And the sadness that comes with it. Like when you hear a song and you're like, yeah, I like this song. But I, then you realize how dated it is. And you're like, fuck, this is 20 years old. Hmm. Uh. Wow. <laughs> the sense of you're getting older, you're dying. Like that, that sadness of just getting older, it, it kind of fits there too and this idea of you can't go home again you're not going to be a bright-eyed bushy-tailed young person again right and i, I think that's gone <laughs> I, I i would say that's kind of like part of the magic of creepypasta right is because oh, yeah. y- you know like like we're talking about the internet getting older and becoming like this graveyard of haunted artifacts and we're talking about society progressing and how uh, architecture becomes the de facto site of haunting but i think part of part of what really really makes creepypasta just work as a modality for sharing horror is that we ourselves are part of this process right each of our individual mm-hmm. lives it ages and progresses. We become the graveyard of our own memories and experiences as we get older and things get lost in there, right? If you've ever been yeah. like, um, like I'm helping a family member move right now and I just went through a box of my old childhood toys and, and oh, it was just yeah. like this rush of like like everything I had forgotten, things, thing, things that used to be important that now I have just has completely escaped me. And there's something haunting about that. There's something haunting about the fact that like, 20 years from now, the things I'm doing right now might not matter to me at all. And there's such a good, like, nexus of fear right there for for aspiring horror writers everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to, to, to maybe kind of widen things out a little bit, there's also something to do with the way in which we think of history generally, right? Uh, Classically, the Gothic is about the terrifying violent past coming back into this ostensibly civilized presence, right? Mm. But if we if we exist in a postmodern or even post-postmodern age, then what we've lost is a sense of historicity. We've lost, lost the idea of there being uh, a kind of past that we can uh, be afraid of. Mm. And so I think that means that we have to change, we change our relationship to time. So uh, in Walpole, he says that I found this, this is a medieval manuscript. Now the medieval is not terrifying, it's antiquarian and it would be interesting. But maybe, given given the, the cultural logic of late capitalism, what's terrifying is the 10 years ago where things seemed a little more predictable. That that idea that, that the, the mysterious past has become something that is not something much much closer to us Mm. yeah i mean like how often do you get a a a post on twitter that's like remember this thing that just happened that was a month ago and you're like fuck yeah exactly i think twitter has basically changed how we think about time yes and everything's this endless now 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 and and that is kind of how the internet is sort of oriented it's like okay sign into your your youtube homepage. Mm-hmm. here are the latest videos sign on to whatever social media here's the latest thing here's the newest thing there's no let's begin at the beginning it's just no 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 and yeah. to find anything old you really 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 have to dig for it it's not meant yeah. to be accessed it's meant to be forgotten 
And if, if yeah. there's anything that I would say is to just, if, if I could pick one thing to be like, this is the absolute worst part of the culture we've built and the thing that must be destroyed immediately, it's mm-hmm. it's the, the fact that the 24-hour news cycle has bled into every aspect of our existence and it's mm-hmm. no longer 24 hours. Now it's like a couple hours tops and everything is flash in the pan and everything starts and then a moment later is far too old to be worth discussing. You know, like right. like commenting on a tweet that's a day old is that's <laughs> crass. Why would you, why would you necro a thread right. that's been dead for so long? You know, and like that, this this doesn't do anything good for us. Having hot takes the moment something happens isn't useful, good, or helpful. You know, it doesn't allow no. people to think or process information. It doesn't allow situations to develop or nuance to exist. It's just yeah. who has a flat take in the moment. And that yeah. is apocalyptically grim that this kind of machinery <laughs> could so easily reshape our lives. But but that is, that's the, that's the, cultural logic of like capitalism you know capitalism demands endless productivity it demands the endless now history is something that is not necessarily um uh, you can't necessarily marketize that because history is past so what you have to do is you have to reduce everything to the present everything is is now and so it's not about uh what can you think it's about what can you communicate immediately mm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's try and try and pull it back yeah. <laughs> toward toward creepy pasta. But I think this aspect of the internet does tie into more traditional cosmic horror themes in that it's about information and how it will drive you insane. And yeah. that also is an aspect of creepy pasta. I mean, you know, the the whole this forbidden knowledge will drive you mad. That's like ninety percent of H.P. Lovecraft stories. But the effect of too much internet on the brain is very real <laughs> and and and, um, and yes. very very uh fertile ground for for creepypasta horror stories and when handled properly it can be extremely effectively spooky i mean how many people get radicalized and become white nationalists just because of what youtube videos they're they're getting recommended to them like an alarming number of people how many of our grandparents went fucking insane because of what facebook's algorithms keep shoving in their faces yeah the internet is a force to drive us mad of knowledge that we shouldn't have that our brains aren't capable of understanding like i i don't know whether facebook or the color out of space is more potentially dangerous to our sanity as a species <laughs> and, and creepypasta can kind of express that really really well i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah no like i um so there's um it's not it's not a creepypasta because it doesn't come from like message boards of the internet but there's a really good lovecraftian short story about a guy who mail orders a new modem just to just to soup up oh. his computer but like you know he, he he fires it up and it's like glowing with all these strange symbols but at first he's like oh it's just like the branding or whatever it's got some led lights but then like mm-hmm. it connects his computer into like this like lovecraftian cthulhu like entity you know it's 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 nice. like a, it's like a cosmic bridge to something terrible and then like by and by he realizes that it's driving him insane and he needs to destroy it but it's too late it's a it's a really fantastic uh, short little lovecraftian story but i think like it isn't that really interesting that like 
it's not it's not Cthulhu. It's not like cosmic entities we can't understand. It's not some fundamentally incomprehensible information. It's just like low tier propaganda from like Rush Limbaugh that has fundamentally ruined society. Yeah, and it's not just that it's that I think, but the structure of it, the way it's like everywhere that there's not mm. any distinguishing like here's someone you can trust here's someone you can't and it's just it's too much you need a really high level of media literacy to sort of sort through it and and the way that the internet's managed to sort of exploit this very human sense of loneliness and and I, I know I overuse this term but parasocial relationships in order to sell you stuff whether that's like material goods or a really broken ideology is pretty alarming and it's not something we're good at standing up against yeah it's to do with the structures of technology i mean i don't know i don't i don't necessarily think it's it's the fault of the propaganda itself because rush has been yeah spewing out his garbage since what the 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 paleolithic era (laughs) Um, but it's but it's about the, the the structural tools which which spread it we are plugged into the biggest neural network ever created we're in this huge experiment in conditioning human behavior willingly because that's the bit which is which ties it so clearly to horror right horror is marked by both revulsion and attraction by both disgust and fear and appeal Mm -hmm. so like we hate what technology is doing to us but we we will willingly log on every single day yep until until it all comes crashing down i will keep using twitter even (laughs) though like who knows i could be the main character of twitter anyone could be as as that one tweet said (laughs) the the thing of twitter is that every day there's a main character and you really don't want to be that person if there, was, if there was one tweet that was truly a correct and good tweet, it was that one. Yeah. <laughs> and yet I'm still on there. Uh, right. Yesterday it was Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins was Twitter's main character yesterday. Oh, he's God. He's been there a couple of times. Yeah, he's yeah. got that as a reoccurring deal, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. All right. But but anyway, um, let's move on and talk about where creepypasta comes from, the origins of it. There was a lot... Coming from anonymous message boards, this sense of mm-hmm. anonymity, I think, was really important to the formation of Creepypasta. I yeah. mean, the chans, something awful, I think, is what, what spawned Slenderman. Mm-hmm. Random blog posts. I mean, Ted the Caver was hosted on Angel Fire, which for, <laughs> for you Zoomers was uh, <laughs> before before Squarespace, I guess. It was a, a way to cr- build your own really, really janky web page. Before there were these giant platforms where everything's already sort of laid out for you, you'd have to learn some really uh, basic HTML and sort of piece it together yourself, and it would probably look like shit, but it would be yours. Yep, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine imagine TikTok, but it's not an app, it's not social, there's no video, and you have to make it yourself. <laughs> it was a golden yeah. age. You got You had to do all the formatting yourself, all of it. And you are not a web developer. You're some guy. Uh, I was going to say you're me and you're bogging down like your load time with like tons of like horrible little animations of like rotating yes. ghosts and pumpkins and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you need like a MIDI file yep. or something spooky. Um, um, or yeah, yeah. You have, the, you have the MIDI file for some Final Fantasy 7 music playing in the background yes. for some unknown reason. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Oh, oh yeah, I missed that site. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
One aspect that I find particularly interesting is, especially in the instance of uh, just watching where Slenderman kind of came from, is this notion of cooperative storytelling. Like, Slenderman didn't kind of come up fully formed from one person's vision. What happened is uh, the Something Awful forums had a thread that was, let's make some spooky photoshops. And one guy mm. created these photoshops of this like unusually tall and thin man with a blurred face around some children with a vague caption about some kind of fire. And it was very like Pied Piper-ish. Cat. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was very Pied Piper-ish and, and very unsettling. And people just, something about it just really connected with people. Something about it really struck people. And yeah. all these various anonymous accounts started submitting their own take on it, submitting their own Photoshops, and just sort of cooperatively building a whole sort of mythos, which kind of watching that come together was really, really unsettling, too, because it the watching it form organically, it almost felt like this entity was creating itself, which was really wonderful and really just deliciously spooky in a way that a horror movie or a book that's been carefully made and published and is finished, it it, it doesn't give you that same feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's, that's a really good way to look at it. And I think um, part of that is that, like, there isn't, there isn't just one Slender Man, you know? Right. And, like, this is... I, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but I think this is one of the reasons why attempts to kind of capitalize on a lot of creepypasta don't work too well. And, and, that, mm. and that's because, you know, when, when we talk about who or what Slender Man is and the lore and the mythos and the reasoning, you know, like, it just depends. Like, you know, you're going to say one thing if kind of Marble Hornets is where you established your canon. And you're going to say another thing if you just kind of like went to the creepypasta wiki and absorbed that that as your Slender Man canon, you know. And like yeah. everybody, everybody's going to have like a different take and a different relationship too slender as as a body of work in a way that like you 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 don't have that same kind of uh disparate interpretation and that same kind of diversity with like star wars so one, one of the things that's really interesting about creepypasta right is that there there is no single canon you know there especially you know take slender man for example right like if you formed your slender man canon by watching Marble Hornets, you're going to have a different interpretation of Slender Man than somebody who formed their canon off of like the creepypasta wikis and the creepypasta and Slender Man subreddits, you know, right. like your, your relationship to Slender Man is going to be fundamentally different based on where you got it. And I think like canon is a terrible idea for fiction and it gets really complicated and like, yeah, there are Star Trek nerds out there who have absorbed all the comics and the books and like... You know, they, they have an incredibly nuanced vision of what goes on in Star Trek. But, like, for for the majority of people, like, Star Trek has a single unified canon built around the TV series and the movies. And that's mm -hmm. just something you don't experience with Creepypasta. And I think it's, it's yeah. one of the reasons, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, why uh, the filmic adaptations and attempts to capitalize on <laughs> figures like Sunderman don't aren't very successful and it's it's because yeah. there, there there's no unified core to capitalize on. Right. It's very folkloric. Yeah. In yeah. Deeply. Folklore. There's not like one standard. This is what the story of Hansel and Gretel is. You know, there are <laughs> all these different regional variations. There, and it changes through time, and it also changes who's telling the story and who they're telling the story to, which is 
really individualized and really spooky and, and organic and messy and, and kind of wonderful. Yeah, I think that too has got something to do with the the internet on which these things kind of emerged as well, right? Yeah. It was it was far far more decentralized. It was right. far more anonymous. It was far more like structurally weird. You know, things like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube were not the big like dominating forces that they are now, which allowed for there to be space in which weird message boards would just pop up or like very individual blogs where if you were interested in that kind of thing you had to go and seek it out it wasn't algorithmically suggested and so that allows for for there to be space in which these contemporary folklore is a great way of thinking about it Mm. um to to sort of emerge and develop and you don't need an author because what you need is you need the 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 community which understands and assimilates and distributes the narrative rather than it rather than an author figure right it's it's a very de- democratic type of building culture as opposed to what so much of culture is where there is a corporation there is a an entity that decides this is what a story is this is this is what yeah. the story is this is batman you're going to watch another batman this is what batman is <laughs> batman is the way we define him this is who batman is this is what batman says and in, and that is the person who determines what Batman is, because that is the entity that has a gazillion dollars. But in this case, mm-hmm. in, in the instance of, say, creepypasta, you've just got a handful of creepy weirdos yeah. telling each other stories. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a little bit of campfire storytelling in a mm-hmm. little way. It's like this circle of people who are just gathered there and everything else is dark. And for whatever reason, they're all together in, in the forest and they're just telling this stuff back and forth to to entertain each other and it's just this really wonderful pure uh form of storytelling yeah like i, I think it's yeah. i think it's interesting that like we refer to to modes like this as like democratic i think that's a really interesting choice mm-hmm. of phrase because like creepypasta for me represents like something like like uh you know almost like anarcho-syndicalist free, freely associated federations right you know, mm. like your your Slenderman camp can choose to freely associate with any of the other Slenderman camps, right? Like if, if you're really into Marble Hornets, you could freely associate with the people who are like into Slenderman slash fic and work together to build something. <laughs> or you can choose to not freely associate with them and have, have like your own distinct subset. And so I think that, that in a way that there, there's almost this really interesting example of like freely associated, federated bodies of creative artists banding together to build something and then disbanding uh you know when the project's done or when they choose to no longer work together is really interesting yeah yeah and it's just kind of neat to see how these stories change depending on the situation and and who's telling it and why and what people like to focus on like what i loved were the people who were building this whole like history of him and they were like photoshopping old medieval illustrations to make (laughs) oh and in the 16th century here's this german woodcut engraving of der grossmann and like it's just yeah i love that stuff so so much. much yep that, that is my favorite it. Slenderman stuff. Are, are, are the people yeah. who, who did the, the historic, historicization of Slenderman? Right. Oh, it's so much fun. And what's fun is anyone could do that. If you decide yep. you want to fucking put him in a cuneiform tablet, you can do that. No one's going <laughs> to yeah. stop you. you fucking time, go for it. Have fun. Yep. Then, yeah, that's all that's needed. There isn't. All that's needed is a shared community of readers because it's the people who were reading that were making the stuff in the first place. So 
in a way you can you can get I mean the the author as we understand them today is a is a very contemporary invention culturally speaking right it's a very old way of telling stories this idea of of like oh well here's here's the legend about the about the old Johnson place yeah is really just the kind of updated version of of you know the stories that you would hear around a campfire the stories that your community would tell one another and it wouldn't matter Right, the hook hand in the car. It doesn't matter who came up with that. It doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is, is it scary? Yeah, and there's something so beautiful about that of people just telling stories to each other, for yeah. each other, without any idea, without any motive of, this is going to make me money, this is going to make me famous, this is how I get revenge on the people who didn't like me in high school. It's just, <laughs> I want to tell the story just for the simple pleasure of telling a story and listening to a story. And it's really pure and really beautiful, even if it's about, you know, suicide mice or <laughs> Russian sleep experiments. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was just going to say maybe maybe before we get like we we see too much of this from like the positives I think it's very telling that the subject matter what the subject matter they went with is because mm. all of these stories are kind of expressing the dark side of the utopian impulse that puts people online at that time period anyway mm. I mean that was that like that kind of first you know web 1.5 2.0 is very like tech is going to save us technology is going to take us into this brand new utopian future where we're all connected uh where information is shared globally where we don't need to worry about you know any of that uh, old outmoded ways of knowing and communicating anymore but it's also about technology is evil terrifying and is cursing and it's you know slowly destroying our minds yeah yeah i mean aren't aren't so many fairy tales kind of warnings too like i mean little red riding hood is all about like stranger danger so many of these are also warnings and and in many ways i think a lot of creepypasta does kind of fit into that which is like hey maybe log off every once in a while (laughs) 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 go outside Which is a very good message. A hundred percent. Another aspect of of creepypasta that I've I've noticed is it's very similar to urban legends in that so often these stories aren't just, here's a story I heard, but like, this happened to my friend's cousin. Mm -hmm. This happened to my uncle's ex-girlfriend. And and I do think it's kind of neat that we, you can sort of trace this lineage from the urban legends of, of, of yesteryear. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, onto that. It, like, if you look at the very early Gothic again, late 1700s, there are loads of stories in uh, magazines about um, people who have seen ghosts or have had kind of supernatural experiences. And so loads of these narratives go, oh, this wasn't just anybody. This was an upright citizen, someone who doesn't even drink, right. someone someone who you probably know and, and maybe <laughs> sit next to in the coffee shop whilst you're reading The Spectator. Right. Because it's, it's, it's all about, like, all that's needed is a little bit of detail to make it seem more believable. Yeah, a little bit like the found footage movies. Like, yeah. if these were shot in just traditional horror movie format, they would really just kind of be crappy horror movies. But 
the way that they're shot it adds this extra suspension of disbelief that makes it way 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 more effective like imagine if the Blair Witch Project was not <laughs> done in a found footage style you just have like a trio of assholes yelling at each other right, in the just woods. lost in the woods with a yeah. bunch of beautiful dolly zooms and like yeah, <laughs> incredibly just, expensive just shots just fucking horrible did you lose the map <laughs> and then there's like a there's like an aerial helicopter shot just just panning over while they're screaming that would have been terrible <laughs> And yeah. a theme song sort of dun dun dun. Oh my god, a bunch of audio. You lost the maps, Josh. <laughs> oh yeah, it would have been a way worse film if they would have done that. <laughs> Fucking awful, just an unwatchable but, movie. But it would get. But the fact that it, the fact that it does look so bad, the fact that it's 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 designed to look like it was made by student filmmakers who don't really know what they're doing, makes right. the whole thing seem much more believable. Right, and that that's kind of suits a lot of the writing style of a lot of these creepypastas. Like, a lot of these are not well-written, really, in, 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 like, a traditional sense. There's overuse on adjectives and adverbs. There's yep. a lot of telling, not showing, but the whole yep. format of it that, oh, this is a screenshot of a message board post, it totally works because... An anonymous person posting on a blog probably isn't a great writer with an MFA, you know? They're they're probably, this is a person who's not great at expressing himself, expressing himself as best he can, which is to say, kind of poorly. And I, I think there's like a, there's a beautiful irony to this, right? Because like, so many people with creative writing degrees have like zero creative writing output, you know? And like, you, you get churned through that system and then you learn to write in this really unified uh, systemic style. And then like, eh, what happens? What happens to a lot of those degrees? You know, like you, you get a straight job and you kind of write on the side sometimes maybe, but then like some, somebody just having fun with a creepypasta creates a vile entry into the SCP Foundation. <laughs> and then that gets read by uh, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, like, so I think there's like a, there's like a beautiful irony to like, uh, you know, we were talking before we started the recording about like, you know, punk music and punk music canon and stuff like that. And I think there's like, there's a beautiful irony to that too, where it's like a lot of ultra famous punk bands now that, that are household names. We're like a bunch of people who could barely play their instruments and definitely couldn't sing getting together and putting a band while like people who are, or who were traveling through like the approved institutional means of becoming successful musicians just like never made it out of mm. their day jobs. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, taking it back to found footage too, I, I find that found footage movies fail when they look too good. Yep. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like when they start trying to put in like a dramatic artistic camera angle or I'm like, wait, that's a soundtrack. This is supposed to be yep. some dipshit with a camcorder. Like, wait a minute. Nope, you lost me. Uh, yeah, this isn't yep. just some jerk with a with a, with a a camera. This is a real movie now. I'm sorry. I, I, I love I love found footage <laughs> movies where their found footage cameras are like $80,000 red media machine setups. And, it, yes. and it's just like you're you're running from the zombie apocalypse with with like a camera that's worth more than some people's homes. <laughs> like it's just the funniest thing in the world. Yeah, I mean they can make, kind of make it work when it's like, oh, this is a camera crew that we're filming a documentary and we stumbled upon it's, a goose. Yeah, but like yeah, yeah. this is some guys. This is some bros having fun. You can't. It's just guys being no. guys. This is guys being dudes. Guys being They're not dudes. gonna have the camera. <laughs> So, so the amateurishness totally works for creepypasta in that case. And trying to be a little too well composed, too artistic, and too slick is like, no, it's a no. Yeah, it's 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 the kiss of death for it, isn't it? You know, I mean, I I 
I was rereading Ted the Caver, and I'm like, I I know a lot about caving now. I know a lot. There is a lot of unnecessary detail about how exactly do you deal with caving. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if it was written, if it was written in a way that was more kind of polished and more kind of designed to ratchet up the tension instead of allowing it to kind of emerge organically as you buy into the premise, mm-hmm. I think the whole the, it would it would not be nearly as effective. No. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that. It feels like it was written. I'm sure the guy who wrote Ted the Caver was big into caving and probably found something spooky and said, I'm going to make this ghost story about my caving adventures. And it struck me as like, yeah, this is how a caving obsessed guy would write. Yeah, 100%. And it's perfect. It's so good. (laughs) It really is. I I really, really, I was was, uh, reading on my lunch break today and I was like, oh. So good. I can't imagine what it would have been like to kind of read it live, as it were. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Ted the Caver. I I fucking love it. (laughs) It definitely is one of the best. Let's pivot from that and go into something we touched on a little briefly before, was why attempts to capitalize on creepypasta so often fail. Like, there have been a bunch of Slenderman movies including one very tasteful one that was released immediately after the stabbing <laughs> and was about little girls yeah. sacrificing their friend to the Slender Man. Really fucking tasteful. There were a lot of terrible Slender Man movies. There was The Rake. There was The Bye Bye Man, yep. which is uh, just, Oh, God. Ugh. There was The Tall Man, which asks the question, what if Slender Man had a van? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there was, um, th- I think there was a, a Ted the Caver movie. I, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. I, I have heard that the Channel Zero adaptation of Candle Cove was supposed to be pretty good. And there was a video game very clearly inspired by the SCP Foundation called Control. And I've, I haven't played it, but honestly, it looks pretty great. I mean, you're a secret agent type person wandering around a secret government base with a lot of spooky things on it like that that that's pretty solid that's solid Uh video game premise can't go wrong with that (laughs) (laughs) but most of these absolutely suck i have not seen or heard of a good slender man movie and it's pretty remarkable like how is it that a hollywood studio with a good amount of of expertise and a good solid budget ended up making something less effective than like the Marble Hornets guys who were working with yeah. a camcorder, a dummy, and a budget of like twenty dollars. How how does the studio <laughs> fail while these these like just kids goofing off in in their backyard succeed so well? I, I think there's there, there's so many interesting things going on here. This is like oh, discourse. I love it. Um, I think one of the things that's happening is that. Uh, like, I really liked the um, Channel Zero Candle Cove, but I think the reason it worked so well is because it's not about Candle Cove. It's about people experiencing Candle Cove. Mm. So it's not an attempt to make the Candle Cove uh, kids TV show. Right. It's an attempt to be like, oh, like, you know, like, like this is the experience of people trying to figure out what Candle Cove is all about. Yeah. You know, so it's it's given a, a layer of abstraction that allows you to kind of pass through. Like if if it was just Candle Cove, the kids' TV show, it would have been awful because nothing can by you know like like what Candle Cove, the kids' TV show, is is intentionally very vague. It's very diaphanous, right? And into that vagueness, we pour a bit of ourselves. And and there's no way a studio can kind of put that together. And right, like what is Slenderman? Right, Slenderman is. Uh, 
maybe a really tall humanoid entity in something resembling a business suit. Right. Like, it's Slenderman's goals are something, depending on who you're reading or what you're watching. Right. Slenderman's rules are, mm, I don't know. But to make a movie, like, I mean, like, like Marvel Hornets, like, Marvel Hornets is a serialized TV show, essentially. Yeah. And it works so well because it leans into the ambiguity and it leans into the vagueness in a way that, like, a, a studio exec looking at that script would be like, no, never. There's no way we're going to put this on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in any horror movie, any mainstream horror movie, there's always a scene where somebody figures it out and explains what's going on. Often using, like, microfiche yep. footage from the library. With right. like, oh, my God, it's been going on for years. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's like okay, these are what the rules are. We've we've taken this yep. weird nightmarish thing and made it logical and rational, and nothing scarier than that. Yeah, they just Scooby Doo it. Yeah, I mean yeah. these things. This kind of lives and dies on whether it feels authentic. Yeah, and that's an incredibly hard mm -hmm. thing to translate from a, a badly HTML coded web page that maybe you stumble across because you saw a link on a forum that you've not been on in like six months and it and it feels like something that a friend might have told you. It's right. very difficult to translate that into a film because you don't get the same sense of kind of authentic connection. The film always feels just inherently more artificial. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think I think the key the key for me to to this is that like the Slender Man stories and like Ted, Ted the Caver let's use Ted the Caver Ted the the Ted the Caver if you wanted to adapt that it isn't about mm -mm. Um, get, getting stuck in a cave and being chased around by a monster and finding uh, uh, ancient hieroglyphs of a prehuman race or whatever like that's not that's not what Ted the Caver is about Ted the Caver is about refreshing a website and waiting to find out what happens to this guy yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. like that's the that's the experience of ted the caver so if you wanted to make a ted the caver movie that worked you wouldn't make a movie about a guy stuck in a cave you would make a movie about like maybe uh it's somebody somebody's niece their their uncle uh, uh disappeared and his last known record is his like a youtube like a youtube live stream that gets cut out while he's caving you know and she has to go solve it mm. Yeah. Hollywood, call me. <laughs> and part of what made, made Ted the Caver so good is that there's no official ending. Exactly. It just stops. Yep. It's just, I'm going to go just back stops. in the cave and that's it. Hollywood would never be able to end something like that because it's unresolved. You have to have a resolution. You have to have a climactic battle. You have to have an answer to all the questions. And this one never really answers the question of like, what are these things? What what do they look like? What's yeah. happening? And I mean, that's what makes it so much more effectively spooky. But like, that's not what Hollywood does. It just, it just can't leave something unresolved like that. Yep. I mean, there have been, there have been a couple of like short films that are on YouTube that are adapted from the Russian sleep experiment. Ooh. Um, and mm -hmm. then they're not, they're very competently made mm. short movies but they're not very good. Mm. And that's mostly because as a text, the Russian uh, sleep experiment is quite badly written uh, and yeah. doesn't make, and doesn't make a good film. Right. But it's, that's that, but that's not what it's trying to be. That's not what it's supposed to be. Yeah. So the, the very attempt of translating it just reveals how kind of structurally different it is from, from what you're trying to make it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, SCP Foundation is a great example of that too. And that, like, how would you adapt that to a screenplay? Like, they have this very specific Terribly. format, <laughs> and the format works really well. Like the the way that it's written in this bland bureaucratic language with lots of big, like, redacted sections. Yeah, really, really makes it work much better. And it's also, I think, very helpful for a writer who is very imaginative, but maybe not that great at writing. Like you have this format to use, you have this structure to use that'll sort of keep you from from engaging too much in like maudlin language and cliches and, and cheesiness. And it works beautifully, especially this wonderful dissonance between like emotionless bureaucratic language and obviously something really really fucked up <laughs> that's happening yeah 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 I, um I, I think like you know all, all of the things we're talking about they're all found texts in one manifestation or another right they're a found website or like the scp foundation is ostensibly you know like you're you're leafing through a file of forbidden government documents or right. something and I think that that's what translating these things misses a lot of the time, right. you know, like the Blair Rich Project works because like it opens with that preface where it's like, this is all the footage we have on these kids, you know, watch it. So you you become, in effect, a character inside of the narrative when you're flipping through the SCP stuff. Yeah. You're you're the unspoken narrator of those stories. You're 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 the guy in the warehouse. You're the researcher. You're the detective. You know, yeah. you're the person trying to piece this madness together. Uh, the same with Marble Hornets, right? Marble Hornets is is found text. It's just a bunch of random uploaded videos from someone's friend who went missing. Like that's what I think a lot of the attempts to adapt this miss out on is that we're we're the lost characters in these stories, right? You know, and like when you just watch Slenderman kill a bunch of teenagers, like this is boring, right? Slenderman is scary because, like, by the end of reading a bunch of like Slenderman was stalking me stories, I'm like, how many how many X's and O's should I be drawing on my walls tonight? <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. It could be you. It could be you. That's the whole point about the creepypasta, right? It's something that could, it, that's everywhere. Yeah, it, it's, it is you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And much of it is here's some forbidden knowledge that you've stumbled across. Well, a Hollywood movie isn't forbidden knowledge. They want you to watch this. This is something they spent a lot of yeah. money on and they created a marketing budget and made commercials and kind of figured out to show this to you based on your demographic. They want you to yeah. see this so that they can make money as opposed to look at this weird shit I found. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like the SCP Foundation doesn't advertise. It's not like, come look at the SCP Foundation and buy an SCP t-shirt. Like putting it into just the fact that a movie is there for money and wants to be seen really doesn't fit the format of of really effective creepypasta very well. Yeah, yeah, there's um if I could have a quick tangent, there's something that we've been kind of like collectively saying that I want to push back against really mm. quick. And it's it's this idea that the people who write creepypastas and SCP entries and stuff like that aren't quote unquote good writers. Mm. You know what, I kind of want to I want to challenge that a, a little bit because a lot of what our idea of a good writer is is purely the function of uh, like hegemonic attempts to, to create a monolithic culture, right? Mm. You know, where we're fed to this canon and the canon is exclusively heterosexual, cisgendered, white male colonizers, you know, like that is that is the canon that we're given and th those are the standards by which good writing is kind of established. Mm. But like, you know, when we kind of like sit back and like, okay, like what makes a story good? 
it's it's getting something out of it it's enjoying it it's like you, you, the experience of writing it it's how many people have read it you know there's a lot of different metrics we can kind of employ here hmm. and like I, I think i think when we kind of like lean back a, a little bit like a lot of like the, the scp stuff is good you know i've enjoyed reading it i've been scared i found them really interesting mm. you know like they've clearly affected my life because i'm sitting here uh, on a podcast <laughs> talking about all of this artwork yeah, yeah. so so i i clearly find it to be of merit to discuss yeah. you know and we're, we're using like really like intellectual frameworks to interrogate this right we're talking about its relationship to capital and culture and emotion and the human condition so it's not like it's not like an scp entry doesn't merit the same level of intellectual interrogation that shakespeare would you know so, so I would say that like th this stuff is good. It's just not it's not good in a way that kind of like the hegemic machinery wants it to be good. Mm. Yeah, the question of good is always good according to whom, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good point. That's an interesting point. Hmm. It's just like the style of of writing of some of these. It's like if I read a novel that was in that style, I would hate it. But in a blog post, it works so beautifully. <laughs> yep it, it's 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 all about it's all about the format and and the medium mm. you know like there there are there are things that like like Hemingway would have been like the worst microfiction author oh god <laughs> it would have just been like just an, an insufferable sentence that I I went outside today and it rained over you know it it lacks it lacks the punch you know like I think it really just kind of depends on the medium you're writing for the goals you're trying to accomplish what you're trying to do with right. it and ah, I'm ranting no, now. No, that's okay. That is Cut that is mic. a worthwhile discussion. <laughs> the idea of well, what is yeah. what is culture? Like we have the idea that certain forms are high, certain forms are low. Like a novel is like high culture. Blog post is you know low culture, trash culture. Yeah. Um, and and oh, you know what's a YouTube video or or a video game? Like a lot of creepy pasta mm -hmm. is in these extremely unsettling video games, and video games are not considered high culture. Mm. They're not considered like serious, <laughs> but, but yeah. I mean, these little creepypasta video games, and now we're in this era of like PS1 style graphics and gameplay. They're deeply unsettling. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal, phenomenal artwork too. Yeah, like the, that that PS One uh, collection of horror games that came out. Right. The the work of Kitty Horror Show. Like there were there were so many good horrifying video games that I, I think you know deserves so much more critical attention right because people want to talk about like when people talk about art video games mm -hmm. or video games as art they they get preoccupied with the spectacle of like the latest graphics accomplishment from some triple a title yeah. but not enough not enough love is given to to like the the games released on itch.io mm. and the experience itself the I mean, so much of what we think of as as art um, is still based on this old idea of like novel as ideal. So, oh, David Cage's games—they're so—they're like novels. They're so deep, but mm -hmm. it's like, well, it's, they're kind of like yeah. shitty novels, really. And it's like you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like press A to make the novel happen, but it, it, it's kind of. Hard. I feel like we still lack a little bit of a vocabulary to examine gameplay itself as an art form. And because mm -hmm. and and it just games are an interactive medium, and it's this interactivity side of it. it it's so it it we're still developing how how we engage with it and how to talk about it in a like yeah. a meaningful intellectual way. So I think that kind of 
is a stumbling block for a lot of us because we might look at, I don't know, one of like the haunted PS1 cartridge and the mm. graphics are really primitive and janky and, and some of the right and the writings, you know, solid, but it's just the experience of playing through this thing that looks like a really glitchy, broken video game is so creepy. And, and it's an experience that you can't get in any other medium. And mm -hmm. people, I think, have trouble quite figuring out, like, no, it's the gameplay itself. <laughs> that is the art of it. I'm, re I'm really glad you mentioned the graphics, too, because I think, like... Like, like the graphics of a lot of these games are like heavily stylized for several reasons. And like the first and foremost being like, if you want to release a game that looks like a triple, triple A PS4 title, you, you need a team and you need a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. You know, if you are doing this, it's just you and a couple friends or you're doing this on your own. Like your, your budget belt is going to be really tight. And so a, a way to, a way to fix that and a workaround is like, okay, like if you try and make uh, like the latest I don't know any any AAA. Pick any AAA title. If you try to make the latest one yourself, you're gonna fail. Right. You have to fail. But it, but if you sit back and you're like, okay, I want to make a horror video game, and it's just me and a friend of mine who writes. Well, then like, okay, like how about like you know, PS1 graphics are really easily achievable by an individual today, thanks to advancements in game creating technology. Right. And like, I, I think another part of this that's really interesting is like this also. Games are deeply teleological, right? Like, so much of gaming discourse is still to this very day consumed in like, mm. okay, th this this piece of gaming machinery can process this much information, these much graphics. Like, it's you know, we, right. we talk about like like all like like ray tracing is like one of the latest super buzzy hot things that graphics cards can do, and it's all very like product reviews instead of yes, sort of artistic yep. analysis, sort of. Would you yeah. buy this? Yes, no. And I mean, imagine if we evaluated every artistic novel on that. Would you buy this? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. Like, oh, God. Uh, Shakespeare's work is pretty low poly. I'm not that interested yeah. in something that doesn't have a lot of computing power. I don't really buy uh, books. Yeah. It, it, it would only get like a 63 on Metacritic. It's Why would you even <laughs> waste your time? <sighs> yeah, and I, I, well, I, th I think like, like a lot of creepypasta and a lot of these creepypasta games especially like resist inherently resist a little bit of this capitalist modality right because like you know like like the the attempts to actually make the lost silver video game can't you know no one's going to port that to a ps4 unless they're doing it for their own enjoyment because like that's not that's not the cutting edge shiny graphics that's not the in-depth emotive storytelling that that the market is hungry for you know mm -hmm. right and it does also um, kind of tie back to this idea of primitive technology being spookier too like so many horror movies include short i'm, I'm thinking of what was that movie sinister where the guy finds yep. super 8 footage and the fact that it's yeah. old super 8 footage that's silent and it's really like uh, kind of fuzzy and that sort of old kind of brown burnt sienna 70s color palette and there's no sound mm -hmm. playing during it except the sound of the the real spinning makes it so much more chilling than if it had been like high def modern beautiful sharp clear picture that it's just this blurry old video <laughs> of someone getting decapitated it's like oh god yep yeah much much less exciting if, if instead of a box of like old super 8 film right. you've got just like one one little sand disc flash drive right. and it does tie into this idea of memory and and sort of a the past as a different country and just not not even by saying this was made in 2000 whatever but just by the format itself this is an artifact of a forgotten era and it it doesn't 
not just by saying this is from a forgotten era, but it loses, but it uses the format itself. It would be like if you could only get the Castle of Otranto on a scroll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you gotta buy the scroll. You can't get it in a book. And it's all handwritten by a, by a monk or whatever. And there's some weird <laughs> horny drawings in the margins because those monks kind of <laughs> were very lonely. Like, it would be great. There's a great Mark Fisher paper with the title The Hauntology of Crackle, um, huh. which which is, is about this in the context of music, but I think works equally well here. So it's maybe in this for in this kind of mode of storytelling which is so tied up with its form mm. this kind of semi-antiquated digital space it reminds us not of what you know the internet once was but what the internet once could have been in the future you know mm. we we exist online in a homogenized centrally controlled digital space which is uh, under the sway of corporations far more powerful than any government and completely no longer democratically accountable to anybody so there is something hauntological about looking back at a technological space where it didn't matter who was telling the story anymore it didn't matter that they these you know there were no blue ticks writing creepypasta on the something awful forums it was just like uh anonymous internet strangers who had the same strange niche interests as you so i think maybe that's maybe that's part of what's going on here as well that this 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 obsession with form you know the 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 old web page the 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 super 8 footage is hauntological what could mm-hmm. have technology been what could have it what could it have transformed into and could it have been something that was different from the bland sterility of where we are now yeah, yeah. And that segs perfectly into our next topic, which is the question, is Creepypasta dead? According to Time Magazine, the form peaked in popularity in 2010, and it's been kind of going downhill um, in some ways. Web 2.0, social media platforms have centralized the internet, as you've said, into just a handful of big websites that are super corporate, very algorithm-driven, very top-down, very undemocratic. Even the chans, even 4chan, 8chan, etc., are kind of overtaken by divorced dads and, like, boomer MAGA moms (laughs) whose adult children don't talk to them anymore. The internet feels a lot more tamed, more commercialized, more centralized, more monetized. There's less of this sense of just sort of wandering around from weird little community to weird little community stumbling upon interesting things. I mean, if you see something on YouTube, it is because YouTube's algorithms have decided to show it to you. If you see a post that your friend made on Facebook or uh, something they linked to on Facebook, it is because Mark Zuckerberg decided that you should see that post, that link. And that really kind of runs contra to the spirit of creepypasta. I mean, now if you see a creepypasta on I don't know, on your favorite social media website, it's because the powers that be decided you should see this. Although you probably won't see creepypasta, you'll probably see racism instead. (laughs) (laughs) So there's also uh, the fact that a lot of newer creepypastas are taking on a more conventional narrative format. There's a growing emphasis, especially on the SCP Foundation, of authorship and ownership. A lot of older creepypastas were anonymous or communal. 
but more and more authors are really insistent on signing their work. Consi- they're, they're considering copying a form of intellectual theft, and that kills a lot of the suspension of disbelief, and I think there's also a greater emphasis on monetization. And I mean, that's understandable given the economic times we live in, and you know that if you put something online that's interesting, someone's going to monetize it, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or those fuck Jerry guys or whoever, somebody's going to make money off of your work, so it might as well be you. You might as well put up a Patreon and sell t-shirts and, and get ad clicks. But given this this new sort of, this new internet as it exists now, given all of this, can creepypasta in its true spirit really survive anymore? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so I, think I'm, I think what you're saying is totally correct, right? Like, you know, like the SCP Foundation as a thing, you know, like, so I've made a couple analogies to punk rock and like, like I was talking about this before the recording, right? But like, if, if today, you know, I, I were to start a Ramones style band, you know, like that, that, that kind of punk rock is deeply codified, you know, like, like there, there is a set of norms or expectations, right? Like, like the Sex Pistols iconography is no longer threatening, yeah like they introduced an olympics to the to the song god save the queen by the sex pistols right <laughs> like like the ability to shock it has been stripped from that and and i think like we can we can draw analogies here to what's going on with creepypasta right you know because both of these these are you know this is outsider art right these are people who have not traveled the official and respectable channels for making the kind of art they want to make they're people who are doing this from the outside but, you know, by and by that stuff does become successful and it develops its own hierarchies and its own canons. And I think we're, we're seeing that with Creepypasta. But I think that what because what happened to punk rock is like by the time the Sex Pistols were cool and the Ramones were cool and like that stuff was mainstream. Well, then you've got like 80s underground hardcore. Mm. And then, like, you know, that becomes cool. And then you get, like, crack rock steady. And then like that, that I'd look at that never became cool. But like... <laughs> You know, you've, you've always got, like, these underground currents that, that are resisting absorption upwards, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, I think, you know, uh, conventional creepypasta may be currently in the process of being sucked up into the major uh, hegemonic forces of culture, you know, and the people who are becoming successful, you know, just like all of us, we have to make a living somehow. And if I could make my living writing SCP entries, I would totally mm-hmm. do it. Yeah, of course. And, and, yeah, so, so they're like, okay, well, maybe you can make money off of this. So you have to secure yourself as a quote unquote author. But I think that, you know, if, if you're looking for like authentic creepypasta, you're going to be forever chasing your own tail and you just need to, to, to have an ear to the ground for like some weird stuff coming up through the cracks. Here's, here's, here's my take, though, like, and mine is maybe a bit sort of less optimistic than Ash, which is that, yes, classical creepypasta is maybe on its way out, but what repl- what has replaced it is 100% QAnon and Pizzagate. That's, 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 mm. the, that's, the, that's the creepypasta. It's these uh, anonymously produced, badly photoshopped memes which are accepted as being completely plausible and totally credible by the people who think that this gives them some sort of special knowledge into into our contemporary political reality that they wouldn't ordinarily have. So if you want to see where Creepypasta is going, you need to look at... I think you need to look at something like Pizzagate. Oh, wow. 
I I know that I I I I'm aware that is something of a hot take, but it's something that I I think is actually true that it's a way of seeing this same anonymous punk energy that Ash was talking about, but being channeled into some very dark and troubling directions. Huh. Ash, have I stunned? That is an Have I stunned view. you into silence, Ash? <laughs> uh, I, I, th- I think that's. I think you can definitely draw parallels, and I think that there are similar modalities with how this stuff travels, especially because a lot of it originates in places like you know Chan style message boards. Yeah. Right. I, I I don't think I would go as far as to call like Pizzagate the successor movement of creepypasta. I think that that, I don't know, I don't know if I, I would have to think a lot more about that one. Well, I mean, it does follow that cosmic horror format of here's information that will make you completely insane. Yep. There there is definitely your life and your relationship with your adult children. There, there's a stylistic connective tissue. Definitely. Uh, So, so maybe not, maybe not the direct deliberate, deliberate successor, but absolutely using the same, narrative and aesthetic markers that mid-2000s creepypasta was using as well wow oh that is interesting i'm i'm gonna be scratching my head over that (laughs) i mean i i I may i may just be like completely completely off base there but i think in terms of what those conspiracy theories those right-wing a kind of extreme uh almost faith-like beliefs in the deep states that can be destroyed by yeah. sharing this meme and this is the hidden knowledge that the elites that are uh, controlling the media and politics don't want you to know i think there's a lot of overlap yeah 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 it's uh, and now i'm starting to wonder if all the if so much of the stuff just started off as an attempt to make sort of a creepy pasta type pranky jokey thing and it got just really out of hand i mean it might well have that might well be part of it right you know there was chan boards love this kind of real world hacking that you know so that wouldn't surprise me and there's this this historic precedent too i mean like we just have to turn to lovecraft well lovecraft was doing proto creepypasta if we want to use that framework it was just him and a bunch of his friends swapping stories with each other building lore and then, like, right. eventually it, it kind of, it, it took on a life of its own and it broke free. And now you've got, like, serious and extant religious movements built around the actual existence of a book called the Necronomicon and a deity right, called right. Cthulhu. And, yeah. I've met a shitload of people who legit believe that the Necronomicon is real. Yeah, and, like, like there's a, there's a successful, successful example of a creepypasta becoming a reality. So it can happen. Yeah. So, so the principles of your theory, uh, John, stand stand true. <laughs> <laughs> you have historic precedent on your side. I yield. <laughs> but, but to think of to think of it as, you know, this is what started out as maybe a kind of egalitarian cultural ideal of, you know, a decentralized technological space in which you could do whatever you wanted. You could tell whatever story you thought was most interesting. Being replaced by this highly reactionary. Uh, deeply conspiracy-minded uh, movement of people who believe that there are there are, there are like monstrous sex crimes happening in the basement of DC pizza parlors. It's it shows the way that the kind of structures of technology have pushed this storytelling impulse to to a fracture point. Mm. But again, I might be I might be completely I might be completely off base here. But that's just that's just <laughs> the way that I see things going. 
it it does have a lot in common though, it, with with a heck of a lot of creepy pasta. Just wow. <laughs> <laughs> food for thought i think that is a good place to end it because my my brain is seized now uh, thinking about that um before we go where can people find your work do you have anything to plug we have a podcast (laughs) yes it's called horror vanguard you could find it uh wherever uh cursed and arcane podcasts are distributed by whispering ghouls uh, we have a Patreon, uh, uh, patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, also at Twitter, at horrorvanguard. So those are those are the best places to find and support us. Great. So thanks again for stopping by. This was, re- this was a really fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us on. Yeah, and thank you, listeners, for listening. This episode's topic was suggested by one of our subscribers. If there's something you want us to talk about, Head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. All subscribers get access to the Discord server, where you can suggest episode ideas, as well as early access to our regular episodes. Book club tier members get a monthly bonus episode where we talk in depth about important works of fiction by authors like Franz Kafka and Ursula Le Guin. When we hit 20 patrons, we will open up the Lament configuration for a special episode on (laughs) Clive Barker's The Hellbound Heart. So sign up. We have such sights to show you. (laughs) And join us next time when we talk about unfiltered, unsanitized queer fiction. Until then, keep writing good. KittySneezes.com In color.